Welcome to our newest edition of RevGen's podcast, Built to Serve. This is where the social sector's best and brightest leaders, influencers, and funders come together to share stories and ideas on nonprofit revenue and how we can unleash the power of changemakers. I'm your host, Stacey Tubbs, and we will be providing you with new thoughts and ideas to fuel your mission. Joining me today are Peter Chassie, the founder and president of The Water Project, Inc., as well as Brian Joseph, the founder and CEO of RevGem. So Peter, let's start with having you tell us a little bit about your organization. Yeah. Do you mind if I tell you a story? Start there. Yeah. All right. So this all started, I was just thinking, uh, getting ready for this morning. Uh, I looked at the, looking at the calendar and it's August and August is the month that we had our genesis and about, it's going to be 14 years. Um, so we'll be going into our 15th year at the end of the month, which is really uh, kind of amazing when you think about it, time flies. So I was a pastor at the time. I was working up in uh, St. John, New Brunswick, up in Canada. I was an associate pastor, so second, second in command, as it were, at, the, at this church of about 500 or so, a pretty big church for Atlantic Canada. And, uh, and we were at a pastor's conference, uh, a gathering of all the pastors from Atlantic Canada in uh, Nova Scotia, beautiful spot. Um, it was the third day of the conference. It was in the evening, about seven o'clock, and uh, and it, was, it had been a good weekend. But I was getting ready to go home, and um, they had a couple speakers up uh, to kind of pitch us on some things. We were going to go back into our um, into our congregations, and one of the folks they had come was from Kenya, a guy named Titus Kilo. He was a pastor himself, and they flew this guy all the way over from Kenya to talk to us for five minutes, which in retrospect I thought was kind of odd, but. He knew uh, that he is, his time was valuable, and so he lit into his, his talk, and he was talking a million miles an hour with a thick Kenyan accent, and he went right into kind of what, um, maybe what you would expect, I think what I expected that night, which was he started talking about the challenges that the communities that he was serving were facing. So it was, at the time, it was HIV AIDS and hunger and poverty and the lack of education, and there were these, there were these big sort of problems that you had heard of before, and I remember kind of slouching back in my chair a little bit in the first moment or two and thinking, oh, here, here we go again. I'm, I'm going to leave tonight with a little more Western guilt. I'm not really going to know how to approach any of these giant problems. Um, but I'm going to listen to him because he's really interesting and he's talking quick and this is different than anything else we've talked about this weekend. So I'm going to lean in and just give him a chance. And it was sort of at that moment that he brought up this issue that I had never heard anything about before. And that was a lack of access to clean and safe water. Now, this was 15 years ago. Today, the, the problem, like it's, everybody knows it, it's almost cliche. Like when you talk about poverty or, or, um, or international development now, often water is the image that they put up and people go, oh yeah, that's what that is. Uh, back in our day, it was food. Um, but water wasn't known at that time. People, it wasn't on people's minds. It certainly wasn't on mine. And he said, look, if you want to solve any of these problems that I've talked about, poverty or hunger, it all starts with this foundational problem of a lack of access to water. And I thought, okay, but, but how do I approach that seemingly huge problem too? And what, was, what caught my attention that night and what turned my life was they were working in one community at a time. And those solutions were tangible. They were, I could wrap my head around them. They were real numbers of people. It wasn't millions, it was hundreds. Um, and it was a, honestly, it was a price point that I could approach. And he wanted us, he wanted the whole sort of collection of pastors there to, to sponsor five water projects over the course of the next year. And in my sort of naive um, 
running into it, I had this idea in my mind, we could do all five. Um, and I would take it back to our church. We'd get our youth group involved. We'd, we'd do it. My wife and I, maybe we would do one ourselves and, and then we'd figure out the rest of them. So I made a beeline for Titus at the end of his talk. And I thought, I'm going to run up to this guy and I'm going to make his night. I'm going to make his whole year, right? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take all five. Again, just very naive approach to charity that I think so often we come to the table with. Um, and there's nothing wrong in that moment because that's just where you are. So I ran up to Titus and I said, Titus, we'll take all five. And what I wanted in that moment was him to sort of gush a thank you. And he didn't. Um, his response formed really the trajectory of our organization in a moment when he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you must come. And in my heart and mind at the moment that when he said that, my answer was no, absolutely not. That wasn't the deal here. This is about a transaction, Titus. I'm going to write you a check after we raise this money. You're going to go do the thing. Tell me we did a good job. And that's going to be the end of this. Like that's how we approach charity, right? That's that, again, that entry into that discussion. But Titus knew better. He knew in that moment that what he was doing was inviting and I was just ready for a transaction. So I didn't actually make it to Kenya for a number of years, but that was the, that was the beginning of the organization, was in that moment with Titus where he said, you must come. And I actually did eventually make it there. And I remember swinging the door open to his office in Kenya. This is, we had been doing this for a couple of years and we funded the projects. Um, and Titus was wearing the same blazer that he was wearing the night that he gave his talk. And he had this huge smile on his face. And he just said, I, I told you you would come. Um, and he was right. So that's kind of how we got started. So we do clean water and sanitation in the developing world. We develop water projects at a community level um, out in the rural countryside. It's really what we call the often the least and the last served, um, where governments are, you know, as they're approaching these SDG goals, doing a fairly okay job of focusing on high population centers. Um, and there's other organizations that focus on those kind of big numbers. The rural countryside is often left out of that equation. And so that's where we went. And that's where we began developing networks years and years ago. And I've been working ever since to provide not just clean water um, on day one, but really our mission is about making sure that that water lasts day after day after day. It's something we discovered along the way um, as we got into this work. Uh, but that's kind of who we are and how we got started in a nutshell. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a, a story of inception. Peter, what's an STD goal? Uh, SDG goal uh, are the UN goals. Um, that they have set up, uh, they've sort of set these big targets for these big world problems that they want to make, you know, a marked impact on by a particular period of time. And water and sanitation was one that they set very early in the process of, you know, really moving the needle on how many people didn't have access to water. So I think when we got started, there was a number like 1.2 billion people didn't have access to clean water, 2.2 billion didn't have toilets. Those numbers make no sense to anyone. I, like no one can wrap their head around that, that kind of scale. And so they're helpful in the sense of, okay, this is a big problem, but they're not really helpful in sort of how do I step into it. In fact, it often leaves you in that place that I was with Titus, which is what can I do with 1.2 billion people? Um, but it's, it's something that the United Nations has said, look, we're, we want governments to make a commitment to move toward these, to, to these goals. And so one of them is, is increasing access to clean water and sanitation. Um, but there's lots of, whenever you put a big target on the wall like that, um, there's all kinds of unintended outcomes and unintended consequences um, of setting arbitrary metrics, um, because then you've got to figure out how you're going to measure them and how do you measure them over time? And when do you put a you know, line in the sand that says this was actually progress? Is it, is it still progress if half of the wells that we installed don't work anymore? Probably not, but there's really not a metric that captures that. So it's, it's an interesting, there are interesting goals and interesting metrics and things that we kind of are constantly, you know, talking to our donors and, and partners about. 
So this is not on the list of questions, but we'll ask anyway. So how do you measure your impact, Peter? If, if not those standards, what are your internal standards? How many people have water this morning? And we track that in real time. That's been a, a, a labor of passion and love for 15 years is to figure out how can we do that? And then how we make that the core of all of our decisions. So there's, you know, if a fancy way to say it might be people, water, years. Um, how many people have water for how many years? So it really tries to capture this idea that it's, it's a person, that individuals matter. And so we don't inflate numbers. We don't say just because a thousand people might walk by a water point that a thousand people are using that water point. We'll, even if a community tells us there's a thousand people, we'll cap it at 350 of number served because just think practically of someone standing in line and filling up a water can for five minutes, divide that by hours and minutes of the day. It can only practically serve a group number of people. So it's about keeping numbers that are realistic, um, but then do they have water today and tomorrow and the next day? And so that's constantly going back and actually making sure these water points are working, having hotlines people can call to tell us when they're broken down and then keeping that number in front of us at all the time. In fact, we have a, a dashboard here at the office, although we're all working from home, but every day that people come in, they can see in real time the number of people that are being served this morning and all of the communities or all of the countries where we're working and where those you know, metrics may be slipping a little bit or where we're doing well. Um, and we've, since we put that dashboard up, went from like high 80s to high 90s in terms of percentile when we really dug in with our partners and said, this is a, this is a real thing. We're really committed to making these projects last over time. And frankly, some partners uh, and, and team members, as they had worked with other funding organizations, had sustainability was said to be important, but it was really never, there was really never accountability for it. And so when we began to ask the same kinds of questions, I think there was initial um, welcome to it, but when we kept asking um, and really kept leaning into this important number for us, they realized, oh, Water Project's serious about sustainability. Um, it really is water every day for a girl when she wakes up. That's fantastic. <clears throat> okay, Peter, I want to go back to what you said. So there's, there's, there's a big jump in your story there where it goes yeah. from, you see Titus, you're excited, you want the five wells, you're like, sign me up, but your words were just transactional. Mm -hmm. How did you go from that to, hey, let me start this nonprofit called The Water Project and make all this difference because starting a nonprofit is not for the faint of heart, right? You got to raise money, you got to organize. Yeah, so I wish me someone had told me that. <laughs> Give me, give me the details, man. How did you go from, you know, the transaction standpoint to knowing you wanted to do this? Yeah. So there was, there was that, there was that first year gap. So it was like, early, it was 2016 and it really was just, you know, uh, lack of a better term, a youth pastor, associate pastor, going back to a group of high school kids and saying, Hey guys, we're gonna do this crazy thing. We're going to raise money to build a couple wells in a place. Some of you've never heard of. And I know that we happen to be in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Canada, but who cares? Let's do it. And, uh, and so we, and the kids were like, okay, uh, and we explained the story of these young girls that were walking for water every morning. And, you know, honestly, some of the most, some of the most passionate um, folks in that youth group were kids that were living in those poor neighborhoods because they understood that they understood the plight of the girl that was carrying the water. And so they would, they went to their high schools and they were the ones that would rally support. And it was just, I watched this kind of grassroots thing happen that I think is can really drive passion in leaders, you know, as they watch people respond to a story. And what, what I think was amazing to me, I'd been doing internet marketing just before that. And so I knew that this, and this again, is 15 years ago. So you got to kind of do the, do the rewind and remember where we were when the Facebook was literally just happening. Um, but I knew there was something 
special about being able to draw people into one idea and then tell them the fuller story. That, that's oftentimes in internet marketing, you had to meet people where they were and you had to kind of figure out where they were and then bring them into your story and kind of shift the narrative a little bit. Um, so we kind of, I watched the kids do that with grassroots in their own, uh, in their own interactions with their friends in introducing the story of water. And I had this idea, you know, like, well, what if we just bought up, I did this. What if I just bought up ads for bottled water on Google? Cause it was cheap back then. And there weren't a lot of people advertising bottled water on Google. So I was like, I'll just buy up ads. Like that was paying like, you know, 10, 50 cents a click or whatever. And I said, if I could just turn that into a dollar a click, look, I made 50 cents. Like that's, that's good profit for the charity. Like I can, and that was personal money. Like it wasn't charity money. So I did. And then we told the story of like, is bottled water really necessary? Like given these big, these huge world problems, this, this water crisis, is bottled water really what you want to be doing with your money? And so again, like shifting the narrative for people. And there were these little things. They're like just iterative, like, hey, we'll try this out, see what happens. Um, a young, one of the teenage girls came in and said, hey, can I put this on the Facebook? And I said, sure. 500 people later, like we have this movement at her high school. And so it kind of got legs. Um, but I think then there was this other moment, this transformative moment, right, where you look back and go, oh, that's why we went in that direction. Where we had a guy call us from, I think Vancouver. I was an oil guy. And he was doing exploration in like Turkana, north part of Kenya. We weren't working there, but it was, he had a deal with the Kenyan government was he, if he was going to get drilling rights in this part of the country, never ended up working out. But if he was going to get these rights, he had to do some charity give back. And so he had found us, I think through one of my Google ads, because um, how else the heck does that happen? And he starts talking about one of his giving experiences. And he said, look, I, if I'm going to give, and it was going to be a really significant gift, um, I need to know that I can, you know, see some impact and see some results of my work. And, and I already thought like, that's automatic. Like I, I was expecting that from the gifts that we had given. So that part of the question didn't catch me, but what did was he said, you know, because last year I had one of these giving catalogs and we've all seen them. Like you can buy goats for your family members as a present. And he said, so I bought my grandkids all goats cause they have everything they need. You know, they're all very wealthy. And so I said, we'll just, we'll buy them goats. So he said, I bought a lot of goats. Um, he said, but then I called the charity back and I, and I asked, uh, can, I, can I see my goats? And he said, I heard the, the woman on the phone kind of audibly gasp because I don't think anybody had asked to see the goats before. And the woman on the phone, you know, frontline phone person kind of knew there aren't really any goats connected to that gift. Like we're not going to be, we maybe can take some, a picture of some goats, but this guy wants to see his goats and he wants to know where his goats went because that was the implication in the, in the catalog. And the end of the sentence was, you know, he asked me point blank. He said, Pete, can you show me the goats? And from that day, we said, you know what? We can build an org using the tools of the internet as they were emerging and the kind of the new connections we were, you know, able to have with these folks on the ground that were doing the work with us where we could show donors the goats. And again, this was before we even incorporated, you know, we hadn't even gone back to the States yet, but these ideas were forming and, there was kind of this sense of, oh, this is a neat way to do charity. Um, like I hadn't done a lot of charity personally um, in terms of being involved. We just weren't equipped to do that. And, um, but actually at that point in my life, we were. And so we were giving into this and I wanted to see the results. And I just thought, well, if the young girl that just jumped on Facebook can see what her aunt, you know, Bessie had for breakfast in Kansas. I mean, I ought to be able to show a donor what their money did in Kenya. So let's just go build that. And so we did, we started, you know, the, the website kind of grew and it got bigger. And I think it was February or so of the next year, my wife and I had this moment where 
you know, we kind of felt God move the foundation from underneath us um, and everything got jiggly because uh, we had, we were committed to being in Canada for, for a good long time. Um, and the long, you know, long story short, the pastor and I both transitioned out at the same time. He had been feeling like the Lord was calling him to retire. And so we both kind of stepped back and that church had a beautiful transition. Everything went well with that. But then my wife and I kind of looked at each other and we said, well, now what? And you put that, that what had been growing you know, in this nonprofit, our position where we could take, um, and this is a revenue thing, like we had some savings at that time, frankly, from the internet marketing job that we had saved up and said, like, we're not, we don't know why we have this money, but we know it's not for us. Um, and so we took that with this transition that was happening in life. And we said, you know what, if we just gave this six months, maybe a year of no salary, we're just going to do this thing. Um, and we'll see it if, see if there's something there. Uh, and so that's what we did. And that started in 2007, I think was the year we incorporated and just started doing like, how do you like legal zoom? Like, how do I start a nonprofit? You know, Google it, <laughs> fill out the paperwork, you don't naively don't know what you're doing. Um, at the 1023. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, you hire somebody to do that too. Like, Oh, two grand, please take that. Uh, that'll be great. Um, and, and you just kind of do what you're, you know, you just one day at a time, like you wake up and you go, well, how do I make this thing a little bit bigger and better today? How do we reach more people? Um, gosh, it was, it was fascinating at that time to watch it kind of begin to grow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so I think we've heard this, but I'm going to ask anyway. Yeah. What makes you so passionate about this work, Peter? Um, I don't, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't, I, and I say I and the we, we don't take credit for the outcomes. Um, like this works about getting obstacles out of people's way. We're giving people access to clean water, like basic fundamental things you need in life to get on with your day. And that should be it. Um, when I get up in the morning, I don't think about the water unless it doesn't work. I don't think about the shower. I just do the things that we need to do. And then I get on with the hard work of changing my family's life, my community's life. And then the outcomes that come from that, well, we'll celebrate that in other people. Um, and that's incredible because uh, it, I, Gosh, I remember asking one of the groups for pictures of some of the outcome of, of water in their community. I honestly expected to get pictures back from a well and, you know, all these people drinking water and splashing in it and having a good day. They sent me pictures of tomatoes, like literally just piles of tomatoes. They sent pictures back. And so I wrote back and I said, you know, I, this, this wasn't exactly what I was looking for. Can you explain what the, what's this about? And they said, oh, well, our school where you put the well in has enough water now to plant acres of vegetables where we would only have planted small amounts before. Cause the water was, we weren't really sure if we'd get our payback on our investment, right? It's like investing 101, what's your ROI and what's your risk. And they knew the equation, which was if it stops raining, all those seeds we bought will be wasted money, but they had a well this year. So they knew they could water them. Even if the rain stopped, they planted these huge gardens and then they went off and they, got these huge piles of tomatoes, which they then sold in the local market and bought uniforms, books, supplies. And so there again, does water buy books? Not, you know, immediately. And, and is that kind of outcome and that kind of entrepreneurship that it spurs on the ground, what we had necessarily set out to accomplish? No. So we don't take credit for it, but we can celebrate it. And that, that's incredible because we get stories like that all of the time. Soap makers starting up businesses, young girls, you know, planting trees and giving money back to orphanages that they were a part of. Like that's, this just happens. It's this natural thing that people want to do to help one another. 
and the water just allows it to happen. It allows flourishing in the wake of our having just passed through an area and, and making sure things keep working. It, it's like the ripple when you throw the pebble in, right? And yeah. it just, you know, you start with the water and it's fascinating to hear that. And it's, it's a good analogy because of the name of what your work that you guys do, right? It's the, you build the economies and the unintended consequences. So I want to ask a question about you, Peter. Um, I mean, what you just shared there. So a pastor, you were doing internet marketing. So obviously you, you have tech skills, like you could, you know, in a time back in 2006, that could be very lucrative. What's your personal story that, that pulls you to serve, right? I mean, the name of the podcast, Built to Serve. You're obviously built to serve. The fact that you just shared you're willing to take a year with no salary. What's your story here that, that kind of drives you to do that, if you don't mind sharing? You know, again, I, I want to, for anybody that's out there starting this, this is not one of these answers you need to start this. <laughs> so rest in the fact that if you wake up and go, why am I passionate about this? And you don't have an answer, it's okay. Uh, you'll probably get it in retrospect. If you do, great. All power to you. Go for it. Um, but I was just unsatisfied. I mean, I, you, you live a certain amount of life and you realize that stuff I get or money I have or security I can like kind of grab and grasp for myself. It might bring fleeting happiness because I've never frankly seen anybody on a pair of jet skis that wasn't kind of happy about it. Um, but it's fleeting and it's not, it's not, ultimately satisfying. And so uh, I think that's what keeps me in it. Um, I'm the kind of person that does, and anybody here will tell you, like, I'll work, I'll work a problem in that first 80% of passion. And then that's the marathon after that, where I kind of flame out, like, let's bring some people in who like to run marathons. Um, so there's a little bit of that I think entrepreneurs have, which is like, no, give me the challenge, give me the new. Um, and that brings some measure of satisfaction. But again, the, I think the deep satisfaction comes from going, okay, from the, those things that we're building like we're watching real real change happen in other people and again I, it's not a, it's not an ego thing it's not going look i made that possible it's just going i get to celebrate flourishing and i think in our core we're all built to do that like we were made to see other people flourish i think the reason these times that we're living in right now seems so just wrong and broken to like lots and lots of people is that we find our culture in a place where we don't seek each other's mutual flourishing anymore. Like our country's history is one that's, and I'm not gonna get political here, but our country's history one is, is where like mutual flourishing was what it was about. We tried to create systems and governments that allowed that to happen and somewhere along the way it shifted. And now there's this great kind of dis-ease in people. It goes, what's different? Well, look what's different. It's this, what I want for someone else is no longer paramount. Um, and so I, I think that's it. I think it's just a lack of satisfaction. And so finding what, where that really lies, once you get a taste of it, it's, yeah, you want it. You just want to keep doing it. And, and we were, we collected bios of our staff and we're going to be putting them up online, sort of their fuller stories. And I was so fascinated to see that same kind of element uh, permeate through those stories um, was this idea of like, I've done these things, but where the satisfaction is. And, and I've discovered in this work that my satisfaction is here is just, that's really uh, amazing to watch too. Mm. Powerful. So when you think back to when you first started, Peter, those those day by day steps, right, where you wake yeah. up and you say, "What's next?" Where did you get support, and and who who could you turn to from a learning? Help me. What do I do? I mean, that's such a weird time if you've never done those things. What what helped you? 
Yeah, it was. It, yeah, it is a weird time because um, some days are like frenetic and some days are way really boring. Um, it's just part of being an entrepreneur. And because part of it is you wake up and go, I don't know what to do today. Um, <laughs> and there's no checks coming in and the website's got two people on it. And one of them is a robot. Like, uh, so those yeah. are the early days. But um, so I, I, at the same time, we had come back to Charlotte. I had this idea that I'd finished my seminary degree at the same time that I was kind of getting this startup thing going. And so I was in a community of learning and I actually think that helped a lot because it was just a place to be inquisitive and, and, and kind of dig into maybe tangential things or things that weren't related, but in my head, they were kind of being connected back to the work that we were doing. I was trying to understand um, the purpose of the work, right? So this is sort of theology of poverty and why is there poor and what's our reaction to it and where's our place in that? And I think that helped from a, a why. Um, yeah, and, and then it was... I'm trying to think of, because it was lonely in those early years. There weren't a lot of other, you know, uh, nonprofit leaders around. But we, I, at that time, we were more of a funding organization. So we were bringing money in as a fundraiser. And then we were finding organizations more established than us that were doing the work. And we were passing those on. So those relationships began uh, to really form, become formative. And, and talking with development reps, because oftentimes development reps, if they're really good at their jobs, they know they know that organization better than almost anyone else in the organization because they yeah. cross all the different um, oftentimes silos. And so just getting inside their head and asking them questions about their organization and kind of how does it run and what's important um, questions they weren't always expecting to answer, but a good development rep's going to walk any road that you'll walk with them in a conversation um, because that's, that relationship is, is critical and it needs to be, it needs to be real. Um, and so I was, yeah, blessed to have some of those relationships of people that were willing to let me behind the curtain a little bit uh, and really see how those orgs were working, what was important to them. And then it was just a matter of like looking and go, do I want to be that? Or do I, I love that. I don't love that. I'll take a little bit of this over here and you kind of put it together. And again, look, this isn't waking up in the morning in those early years and whiteboarding this out. This kind of just happens organically. So give yourself some freedom if you're early in this. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Uh, Peter, so I mean, on that same note then, Peter, I mean, it's interesting because you, you do talk about that, right? The loneliness factor, we hear that time and time again, it, it, from all sizes of organizations, from executive directors, especially, but also chief development officers, etc. You know, when you think about that, then those early days where it's just you, you know, where was the inflection points? Where did you have it where it started to be where you got that, you know, that community? And I know you're working with your partners, but what were the real differentiators where you saw the organization kind of go from, hey, this is fun to, man, we really got it having some big impact. And these are the inflection points that keep me energized as that founder. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I, I don't know if I've gone back and mapped them all out. I think there were moments where... Um, where we realized that what we cared about was a little bit different than the rest of the water sector. And, and part of that is just the advantage of coming into uh, an established business line or established sector. You, you get to be disruptive because you don't have a big ship to turn. Um, and so you can see some things either that are emerging or maybe that were just missed and you can immediately begin to work toward them. For us, it was something I often refer to as kind of red light, yellow light, green light. Um, it was, are these projects working? two or three years after we put them in the ground. Because to me, that seemed like a no-brainer. I buy a washing machine, that ain't a day one deal. That thing needs to last me 15 years. Um, I kind of know there's a Whirlpool guy on the other end I can call if something goes wrong, or I can order some parts and have at it myself. But it, it's an everyday, it's gotta work. 
um, or a water heater, whatever. Um, and so I began to ask those questions of some of the, the partner organizations we were working with was, where's the data? Can you show me the data on whether these things are working or not? And, and a lot of them could, but in the aggregate. Um, and it was, and some could, and it was anecdotal. Um, that wasn't good enough. I wanted to know, well, we put in 35 projects. Like, could I have 35 indicators? Just red light, yellow light, green light. Um, is water coming out? Um, is, is it, you know, sort of coming out half the year yellow um, or maybe, you know, and those metrics even changed over time. But early on, it was like really simple water, no water. And I couldn't get the data. Um, and, and that was frustrating. And I got some promises because it was a good amount of money on the line with some of the orgs and they didn't want to see that go. Um, and so we gave time for those orgs to try to turn the ship a little bit and grab some data. And some got a little bit, some, you know, couldn't. And that was a moment of decision. We had to decide whether it was going to be acceptable to continue funding work or supporting work that, um, that we could say we knew continued to work for years. Because everybody was making the claim. Everybody was saying, if you give to our org, you know, $20, you get water for a lifetime. Now, a lot less are making those claims these days, which is part of our legacy. Um, but in those days, it was pretty ubiquitous. If you give this amount of money, you give water forever, which no one had a clue because um, no one had collected the data. No one wanted to know. And that was a really key inflection point. And there was frustration. Um, you know, there was some anger, uh, some disillusionment of going, now I'm in this sector. Like I put good money into these things and we've got to face as an organization that we're never going to know whether some of them still work from that early, from those early, early days. But this is it. This is the line in the sand. If we're going to move forward, we're going to find like-minded folks that want to dig into this with us. And so some grew into that, some we jettisoned. Um, but we also, at that point, we're coming to a place in the organization where we realized that our passion, and we had a few more people working at this point uh, on the team, was that we loved the relationship with the folks that were on the ground um, in the communities working day to day. Um, today, we easily talk about four audiences that we serve. It's donors, ourselves here in the headquarters, our teams on the ground, and, and then the actual folks that are getting the water. In those days, we didn't have those categories, but that's what we were passionate about. We were passionate about having this table discussion where everyone had a seat and where we could hear stories of the people receiving water, but we could hear stories about donors that's lives were being transformed like mine was, frankly. Um, and partners are integral in the middle of that, the team members on the ground doing the work. And to do that meant that our position as a funder didn't really work. Um, we needed to shift from, from being an org that primarily had given funds in a transaction to one that was deeply integrated in the day-to-day. -day. And, and we, so we shifted um, from an org that was initially set up to fund to one that was going to move toward implementation. And those are rough, broad categories um, that the water sector uses. But uh, that was, you know, I think, look, and we did. We sat around as a team and said, isn't this what we, we just love? And that was from the development director to, at the time, like the pro, someone that like oversaw program but wasn't really doing implementation and, and to the rest of the team. And we went, yeah, this is what we love. So let's go and ask who's going to let us close. Um, and where those doors were open, we, we ran through them and then we built some at the same time. So I think those two really key things shifted the trajectory of the org. One, this idea that everyday water had to flow and it had to be real and verifiable. And two, we want to, we want to be around the table every day in this. And what we found out was those, you have to have one to have the other of those two things. 
Yeah. Peter, what's your BHAG for your organization, your big, hairy, audacious goal? We are careful, careful, careful about setting those kinds of goals. And I'll tell you why, because we've seen in the sector arbitrary goals get thrown up against a wall, like um, we're going to serve this many people, or we're going to raise this much money, or you know, we're going to transform this entire place. Um, Those often impose a goal on the other folks around the table that they aren't really a part of. So our big, hairy, audacious goal is we want water to flow every day and be safe for the people that we serve. You know, that that sounds like a big, hairy, audacious goal. Yeah, and I'll be honest, it didn't at the time. Mm. (laughs) We Mm. thought like... This, this can't be that much harder uh, than putting wells in, and that actually is enormously harder. Keeping water flowing and making sure it's safe is enormously harder. Um, yeah. But that's as we've grown as an organization, we're growing to meet that challenge. Um, yeah. There, there's some wisdom in that awareness that the unintended consequences might be something to be careful with. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Before we transition to some conversation about revenue, which I know we're, we're going to get to because that's what we're passionate about yeah. in RevGen, right? Well, you know, you've been doing this now 14 years, right? So 2006, 2007, when you started this whole process, you talked a little bit about this, right? As an entrepreneur, to sustain that, you talked about the marathoners that have to come in. What do you do to continue to keep your fire lit, right? I mean, you've gone through then, you're part of it in the 08, 09 financial collapse. You're part of what's going on right now. But how do you keep your fire burning? Um, Bring people around you that are smarter than you. Um, that can do things that you did okay as a generalist, but they will excel at as a specialist. Um, And look yourself in the mirror and recognize that is not a defeat. That's a huge win. Um, You are not the savior of all those departments. You are not the guru of all of those problems and you don't need to be. Your role as 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 you mature into this over the years is to be that... um, that leader that can bring those other people around and celebrate their accomplishments, give them the tools that they need to get the heck out of their way and let them, you know, you keep them, the guardrails that you, you provided that vision and the mission, like, this is how we're going to do what we do. And as long as we're in that lane together, then you get to, you get to excel at what you do. And, and if other, it, other, others even measure of, you, you know, those people's place in the, in the org or, or who gets credit, that just can't matter. You, you, you get up and you go, this, this work matters, growing the org matters, growing it in a way that is in contrast to what you've seen in some other places matters. Um, and realizing your legacy isn't gonna be about your revenue number, your legacy isn't gonna be about the number of hardware points you put in, but your legacy will be about, did we, did we transform not only the, the water sector, but did we transform charity in such a way that it brings back some of those goals, some of those ideals of you know, this, this flourishing of others, right? Um, and what, is, what are we really supposed to be doing through this work? That, that, that'll stick around a lot longer than a big revenue number or a number of, you know, hardware points in the ground. So it, it, you, you have to, those are oftentimes vague, they're hard to measure, they're hard to pin down, but remind yourself that that's why you're in the game. Um, and then celebrate others' wins as your wins. That's not taking credit for them. That's going, yeah, I guess I created the space where that person could do things far more amazingly than I could in that. And, and that's, a, that's a win. Um, to find some satisfaction in that. 
again, that's mutual flourishing. Like it's the same thing we want for the communities we serve. It's allowing one of, you know, it's your employees and your team members to flourish. Nice. So this is my favorite question in revenue, which is twisted, but that's okay. <laughs> Tell us about your relationship with money, Peter. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, it's such a broad question. I should ask for categories. I got to take a stab. Um, you know, money's one of those things that you always, like in your early years, you, you really think you want more of. And you really want like a big pot of money in the corner um, that you can just draw security from. And then one day, some, some do and some don't, we did. Somebody gave us a big pot of money and it's sitting in the corner. Um, I mean, it's working for us. Don't, I'm not saying we stuck it in the corner, but it is, we use it as a, a very strategic um, reserve of money to grow with. But it's funny, the position to money didn't change just because that showed up. It's just kind of shifted. It's always this place of elusive control. Um, you, you, I think you believe that if you have more money, you'll have more control. That's not necessarily the case. Um, you believe money, you know, a big pile of money will bring you kind of security and peace. And it does to some extent and allows you to do things you couldn't have before, but it's not, it's not that kind of, you know, deep sense of control you want as a leader of an org. Um, and money is a, is a measure of other things. It's not a measure in and of itself. It's a measure of other things. It's a barometer of the rest of the work that you do. It's a fruit. It's not the process. Um, mm. Yeah. Re on the That's revenue good. side. Yeah. I love got that. Friend, got a friend of mine that always says money is nothing but trapped energy. And I think that's <laughs> <funny>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Peter, if you could give yourself, your younger self, a piece of advice around revenue, as you relates to your organization, what, what would it be? Um, it's a good, it's a good question. Cause it's you know, part of it is what I want to tell myself something that was better discovered along the way. Um, <laughs> uh, but this idea that, that revenue, that, that, that this growth, the money that you have coming in, um, that it is a measure of other things. Uh, I think it, it certainly would have helped, you know, even further honed the focus. So what do I mean by that? Um, we, we talk about three values of the water project that we help. We try to pass everything through the lens of these values of reliability, relationship, and trust. And they can be thought of in a bunch of different ways. And we do, but one of the ways we think of them is in terms of time. Reliability is the past. Reliability, you look in the rearview mirror and you say, are the people, um, are, is the stuff, has it been reliable? Has it been there when I needed it? And so that's easy to think of in terms of a hand pump and a well. You know, did, when we went to pump it, did water come out? And communities will judge us in that reliability. Um, and with other people, it is, were they there when I picked up the phone and I needed something? Can I rely on them? And that can be, you know, uh, a donor or investor in your org that you just know is always there. And when there's a moment of growth that you see as an opportunity, to, you know, to, to take the org to the next level. You can pick up the phone and call that donor and reliably they will be there with a gift. Um, that, but that you, you, you learn that is someone reliable by kind of looking in the rearview mirror. Then there's relationship. That is always fleeting and in the present. I'm either in a relationship with you or I'm not. I can't say like, oh, my best friend from high school. We're not best friends anymore. That was past. Real relationship happens in the now. 
Um, and so we're always working to nurture those relationships with those folks around the table that I mentioned, with donors, um, with the teams that are on the ground. That's weekly, sometimes daily phone calls. How are things going? How is your family? Um, what's life, how is life impacting the work that you're doing so that we can put that in the right context and understand it? Do we care about, we truly care about the other's best interest? If you do that well, you nurture relationship well, and you're all to, and you're together looking at the rearview mirror of reliability, the future is obvious, which is just, I trust you. And that's all trust is. Trust is saying, if you're asking me to go somewhere with you, I know based on the reliability that you, you know, the person you have been and the person that I know you to be right now, that we can go together to that thing and that you have my best interest in mind. Money, revenue is trust. That's it. That's why I say it's a fruit. It's an outcome. I can't generate it in the immediate relationship. I can't just pick up the phone with a brand new person and go, hey, will you give us a million dollars? to the do I know you have the capability and I'm just going to flat out ask. No, they're going to want to know, like, how do I know you're reliable and what's, how are we going to be doing this together? If I do that, I'm going to take the leap of allowing you to invest my money to bring some great return, um, you know, in society or in these you know places in the communities that you're serving. But there's, there's that's all about trust because that investment is going to, it's going to take some time for it to pay off. Um, and I think when you when you view revenue and money in that way, then you focus on the things that are important, which is being reliable and trustworthy, or and being reliable and being in a relationship. And you and because the relationship is fleeting, you focus your time and your energy there. Um, is keeping people close. And, and honestly, like, that's just donor relations 101. You, like, people want to be connected and be close to the work. They're, they're, they're not doing this for the transaction. Some will believe that they are in the initiating gift. But if they walk with the water project for any length of time, they're going to very quickly realize what I realized with Titus is you must come. Nice. Peter, if you could design or create anything that you feel is needed in the nonprofit space, what would it be? You know, um, we built this, you know, the show me the goat story, the gentleman that called and said, hey, can you show me the goats? We built an organization around that. And so when we built technology around it, we built processes in the field. We said that every Every tool we use to report on project and work where we're self-evaluating, we can use that same tool to inform donors about what's happening and, and vice versa. And so those tools are synonymous here, you know, even inside the walls. And again, like the blessing was we were, we were an org that could build that from the beginning. We didn't have to turn a big boat to do that. I look at other orgs and I watch them interact with donors in particular. And, and I think, gosh, if you could just show them the goats, you'd have all this trust money would flow in right because you you have this whole story of reliability of this work you've been doing for 20 or 30 years and even in the the daily day-to-day -day present you if you just showed them what you did today there'd be people lined up to invest in your org and i don't know what the magical you know if there's just one single singular tool to do that but it, it is more and more organizations need to move to this place of how do we tell our story in real time how do we become radically transparent and it's not about uncovering whether we're trustworthy or not. We know 99% of these orgs are trustworthy. There's a few bad apples. And accountability feels like that word of like, oh, we do that audit every year. That's our accountability. No, it's really about nurturing this relationship in real time. And transparency and accountability are the tools for you to do that. So what would it look like for the local soup kitchen to bring people even closer? Now, that's, a, that's an example where you can get volunteers in and, and they can see it 
face to face. And, and that's why they work so hard to get volunteers in because yes, they need to help, but really they need them to see the work. But are there other ways that that org could be telling their story in real time? Um, especially international orgs where it's so hard to connect um, with what's happening in such a faraway place. What are the tools that they could use um, to tell their story in real time? Uh, and in a, in a way that people can digest and get deeper in, you know, as they want to and as they grow in relationship. Um, and that would be transformative in, in charitable work. That's the, that's the ROI for the donor. Uh, you know, that kind of visceral and tangible connection to what, how the world is changing. I don't know who doesn't give again after that. Yeah, that's for sure. It's a great point. Okay, I got a question before I know Stacy's going to start moving us to wrap up just because we've had your time here. But this one's not on the pre-questions that we sent, right? But I got to ask right. it because we're, we're about sharing. We're about community. We're about that knowledge that you've, you've gained with and that wisdom that you've gained over time. So, you know, what's the – as you think about your organization, the different challenges you've had, and as you've grown as a leader and, and again, being built to serve, what's the best piece of advice you've ever, you've ever received – and would you share it with our listeners? Oh boy, that's a good question. That's a good question. I'm one of these people that integrate lots of different pieces and then I never really quite remember where they come from. The best piece of advice. I hate to go back to something I've said before, but I wonder if it isn't when Titus just put his hand on my shoulder and said, you must come. I mean, I, I, it seems so simple, and at the time it seemed so easy to dismiss. But moving your organization and especially your donors from a place of transaction to a place of relationship, is it fundamentally changes how you operate. And the values come in line behind it almost automatically. When our board sat down, I don't know, two or three years ago to kind of codify what our values would be, or were, you know, the board said, oh, we'll spend a day and we'll like whiteboard it out and come up with it. it took us like 10 minutes. We were done. Relationship right be on trust. Like that's who we are. And it was looking in the rearview mirror. It was going, where do we come from? Well, it's because in the early days, we had this guy tell us like, we must come. And, and we built an org around that. And it was, it had to be true for our, again, the four audiences, our employees and our partners. And, you know, like we even worked to, when we're collecting data, about our, um, uh, about our performance in a community, we try to do it in a way that the community benefits from, right? And that's about everything's creating an invitation. Every bit of work is creating an invitation because of that initial invitation from Titus of, no, you must come. Um, when you view your work as an invitation to relationship, it helps you answer questions about um, when should I open my mouth and when should I close it? I was having a conversation with uh, a friend of my son's the other night and she was asking questions about like, you know, what do I do when I really want to share this thing about myself that I really believe, but I know the other person isn't going to accept. And it's, I think it was about politics or something. And I said, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, is saying this going to open the door to a relationship or close one? Cause that's the only thing that matters because if the relationship is, is true, then eventually they're going to ask in some way about that thing that's important to you, that, that the relationship is, is that. So invest in that. Um, 
create donor campaigns that are invitational, that aren't just about sucking money out of a resource. Um, create, you know, reports and, and feedback to those folks that's invitational, that, that invites them to ask the next question that doesn't put a period at the end of the sentence because the period means they're not gonna ask hard questions which would require us then to have hard conversations. No, create it in such a way that it's invitational. Not overwhelming, invitational. Um, and you pass it through that lens again and again and again, and you, f you just find yourself where other orgs call you on the phone and go, why do you do it like that? Um, <laughs> but it sure seems to be working. Uh, so yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the best piece of advice is, is, is you must come, um, make it invitational. I love that. You know, it, it's easy for leaders, nonprofits, really to you get lost, right? We get lost in, we got to get this report out. We got this event we got to get to. We got this strategy. We got this fire I got to put out. And, it, and it's exhausting. But to be reminded to stay connected to the mission, right? I mean, we see it, we talk about it, but we do it in a metric way. But how do we actually get out there and see, like, I'm still making a difference here and, and we are doing good work. So I think that's a you must come as a way of just keeping grounded in that. I like that. So last question, Peter, what yeah. do you spend all that extra time you must have? Cause this is such a small job, right? What do you spend your time on when you're not focused on your organization? I love to tinker. Um, I play with uh, electronics and code a lot. Um, just a nerdy way to, spend time on a weekend um we have a great spot where we live uh here in new hampshire um we spend a good time uh, outdoors just in the yard and around our little pond and in the garden um with the family and and yeah i tr we try to we try to live relaxed weekends you know i will say one of the one of the things we've learned about this time of being locked down uh is that we really have enjoyed not running around to things um and we don't miss those things Quite as much as we thought we would and so that's been a that's been a good um good little outcome that we can kind of hold on to and so we're going to reorient our family a little bit around that around staying a little bit less busy because frankly being bored is not the worst thing in the world and i think the best entrepreneurs have had the most time to be bored um, because guess what you do when you're bored and you're entrepreneurial you come up with new stuff and i've watched my kids do that um, i watched my wife do that um, so yeah, uh, create create some space sometimes just to be a little bored. Don't know not a lot of it, but it's it's there. <laughs> the silver lining of COVID, if there yeah. is one, right? right. Yeah. Right. Uh, now, yeah, I'd be curious, Peter, to see if your if your troops with the, in your organization feel the same way because I know my team is always like, enough ideas, stop, stop. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, well. Not all the time, Brian. Just on number 35 and 36, right. right? We're good until then. And then we go, no. I, I even I even introduced OKRs into our organization to put a box around myself. Um, because, and those are the, the Google, it's their Google system of the sort of big goals every quarter or month, whatever period of time you do them. But it also gives you, everybody in the org the ability to say no. That's really the magic of the OKR is that you kind of, as an org said, hey, well, what are we going to do? It's big. We're probably not going to pull it off, but we're going to aim for it. That's where you can inject these big ideas to play with. Um, but it also allows the team to kind of look in the eye and go, that wasn't an OKR. We're not doing that this month. Save it for next month. If you really care about it, it will be ready. So I don't know if they'll say I'm good at that, holding that up or not, but that's why we did it.
It's all a practice though, right? We keep practicing. Yeah. We keep getting a little bit better. That's right. So Peter, thank you so much for being here today. You, it, what, a, what a fabulous organization and those moments of transformation. You've just done such a good job of helping us take the whole journey with you and understand what a, an amazing opportunity you have in front of you with the work that you're doing today. So Brian and Peter, thanks for being part of it. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks for being here, Peter. Take care, all.